It is a great hymn, Bruce. Thank you. If you turn your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, we're going to resume this morning our study in Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to be finishing the chapter this morning. It's a great chapter, a great chapter for this day, Reformation Sunday. Didn't pick this particular passage for this day, but in God's providence we are here. But it's a great conclusion really to the first section of the book of Galatians, and transitions nicely into the second section that will begin next week, chapters 3 and 4. You'll remember that Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians because the Christians in the region of Galatia were beginning to drift from the gospel. Not even really drift, they were deviating, purposefully deviating from the gospel. The church had been thriving and prospering in the Lord until some false teachers that we call Judaizers came in And they taught that Gentile believers in Galatia needed to obey the Old Testament law in order to be full-fledged Christians. And to help their case, they also sought to undermine Paul's influence in the church. They claimed that he wasn't really an apostle and that he didn't preach the true gospel as they were preaching. And they saw themselves as as, uh, sort of the the, the byproduct, the, the next generation from the Jerusalem apostles, although they didn't have their gospel correctly, as Paul will point out, and spends the first couple of chapters showing that they really were not preaching the true gospel after all. Paul was actually more in line, actually not more in line, he was in line with the Jerusalem apostles as they were preaching the same gospel in different areas. In the first two chapters, Paul spends most of his time defending his ministry, defending his apostleship, defending the, the, the gospel that he was proclaiming. Remember that he said earlier in chapter 1 that he had received both his understanding of the gospel, his conversion through the gospel, as well as his call to apostolic ministry directly from Jesus Christ as a direct revelation of Jesus Christ. He received it directly from the Lord, not from the Jerusalem apostles. In fact, Paul didn't even go, he didn't even know the, the, the Jerusalem apostles in person. He didn't know them face to face until a visit a few years after, but it was such a brief visit they couldn't contribute anything to his gospel. It wasn't really until about 14 years after his conversion when he really had some time to spend with them. And that interaction brought about this understanding that they both had the same gospel. They both were preaching the same gospel. They affirmed Paul's gospel he was preaching. They received him as a fellow apostle. In fact, when Paul had brought his Gentile companion, his his fellow partner in the ministry, Titus, a Gentile who had not been circumcised, the Jerusalem apostles did not demand Titus' circumcision. They received him as a full brother in Christ. Well, now as we come to the end of chapter 2, Paul is going to assert even more strongly that he is right about the gospel because he, he shows here a time when he confronted Peter when Peter con- uh, compromised the gospel. And that conversation that takes place that, Peter, or that Paul records for us in Galatians lays out in the clearest and most direct terms the truth of the gospel. Paul presents that truth directly to Peter in this incident that we're going to read about in a moment, but also indirectly as he records this event in his letter to the Galatians. So let's look at our passage, Galatians chapter 2. We're going to look beginning in verse 11 all the way down to verse 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. 
But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I want to think about this passage by answering two questions. First, what did Peter do to draw Paul's opposition, his confrontation here at Antioch? And then second, what did Paul say that exposed Peter's error and clarified the gospel? What did Peter do and what did Paul say? Try to answer those two questions for us. So first, what did Peter do? What did he do that drew Paul's confrontation at Antioch? Well, we see, first of all, that Paul identifies Peter. He's done this previously back in chapter 2, but he identifies him as Cephas. That's just to clarify that. That is Peter's Aramaic name. It just means rock in Aramaic, just as Peter or Petros means rock in Greek. Well, Peter had come to Antioch. We don't know why he had come to Antioch, probably to, to see what was happening there, make an observation of the, the flourishing of, of the Lord there in that place. And he comes to Antioch, and when he comes to Antioch, he enjoyed table fellowship with the Gentile believers there. In fact, the phrase that he was eating in the Greek, in verse 12, indicates that this had become Peter's pattern. Peter had been, had been accustomed to doing this during his time there in Antioch. It was sort of a, a no-brainer. This is what his, his habit was or his custom was. When he would eat, he would eat with the Gentile believers. Now, for a Jew, eating with a Gentile was strictly forbidden. In obedience to the Old Testament food laws, Jews observed a strict diet. They abstained from prohibited foods, those foods that God called unclean, and they ate only the permitted foods, those foods that God had called clean. In order to avoid disobeying that law then, Jews did not eat with Gentiles. Gentiles were not under compulsion to follow the Jewish dietary laws. So when a Jew ate, he would not eat with a Gentile because he could not be sure of how they, what foods they were eating or how they prepared those foods. And so the food laws of the Old Testament created a natural schism between the Jews and the Gentiles. But Peter, as a Jew did not seem to be bothered by eating with the Gentiles. In fact, prior to his visit, we remember from Acts chapter 10, that Peter had been summoned to Joppa in a, in a dream from the Lord. He'd been summoned by the Lord to go to Joppa and to share the gospel, to proclaim the gospel to Cornelius, a Roman centurion who was a Gentile. In preparation for that visit, God revealed to Peter in a dream that he should eat foods that were forbidden by the law. This is in Acts chapter 10. When Peter objected in the midst of that dream, 
God announced that he had cleansed all foods and that Peter should eat the foods that God had commanded in that dream. Now, that dream had two purposes. The main purpose, the primary purpose, was to direct Peter to share the gospel with a Gentile. This was part of the Lord's way of of revealing to his church, reminding his church of the Great Commission, that the gospel was not just for the Jews, but it was for all people. God had sent Jesus to save sinners, Jew and Gentile. And in this particular instance, God was showing Cornelius, the Roman centurion, a Gentile, grace. He was in the process of saving him. Peter, by that dream, God was directing Peter to share the gospel with Cornelius so that Cornelius could hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and be included among the people of God. But the dream secondarily had another purpose, and that was to show that the eating of unclean foods was now permitted. Jews could eat the the foods that were once forbidden. They could eat the foods that Gentiles ate. So in other words, the people of God, the, the Jews those descended from Israel, would no longer be bound by the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Peter here was released from obeying this aspect of the law at least because God had sent Jesus to fulfill the entire law. All of the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so Peter was no longer under the compulsion to follow those dietary rules of the Old Testament. And so when Peter came to Antioch, He ate with Gentile believers with a clear conscience. Verse 12 tells us that, that when he came, he began to do this and did it. It was part of his pattern there being in Antioch among the Christians at Antioch. He ate with the Gentile believers. The gospel here had loosened the bounds of the Old Testament law so that Peter could freely eat the same foods that the Gentile believers ate without condemnation. And of course, why why is this even important? Why is this even an issue? Because eating was one way in which the church shared gospel fellowship. In fact, oftentimes when they ate together, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper together. When they gathered together for worship, they would worship. They would hear the word of God. They would sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. They would take the Lord's Supper, and they would eat a meal together. And it was the eating of that meal that facilitated gospel fellowship, that oneness that we share in Christ, that koinonia. Well, when certain men from James showed up, Paul says in verse 12, Peter stopped eating with the Gentile believers. Instead, he separated from them, and he shared his meals with these men who were still strictly observing the dietary regulations of the Old Testament. Now, who are these men from James, and why would they cause Peter to withdraw from table fellowship with the Gentiles? Well, first of all, to clarify that James, James here is Jesus' half-brother who became the chief leader of the church of Jerusalem. And so these men from him, these men from James, are representatives that he has sent out to Antioch, again, probably to see, the, to, to see firsthand the reports that have been coming to the Jerusalem apostles of the gospel flourishing there in Antioch, first among the Jewish believers and then now among Gentile believers. Well, as Jewish Christians, these men from James continued to obey those dietary laws of the Old Testament That may have been even more of a cultural habit than a theological conviction. It's hard to know exactly uh, what their theological bent was here. But when they came to Antioch, they ate together with the fellow Jewish Christians, and Peter withdrew and ate with the Jewish Christians as well and these men from James. He had separated himself from the Gentile Christians. And so Peter, in joining these men from James, withdrew from table fellowship with the Gentile believers and ate exclusively with the Jewish believers, observing these Old Testament regulations once again. 
And that withdrawal created an arbitrary separation between Jewish and Gentile believers. Now, Peter's motivation for separating from the Gentile believers was not a change in theological conviction. Paul here is not condemning Peter as one of the false brothers. We saw that earlier in chapter 2, right? When, Pete, when Paul had gone to Jerusalem with Titus and with Barnabas, there were some false brothers who were trying to force Titus to be circumcised, even though the Jerusalem apostles did not require it. Okay? So Paul condemned those false brothers because they had an, an incorrect understanding of the gospel. Paul's not condemning Peter for his understanding of the gospel. He's really more pointing out the lack of consistency in his understanding of the gospel. He believed that there's no, there's no change in Peter's theological conviction. What's his motivation then? Verse 12 says he feared the circumcision party. Now, it's not exactly clear who Paul is referring to here. That phrase is used to refer to a number of different Jewish or Jewish Christian groups in the New Testament. Nor is it clear what he feared the circumcision party would do to him or even to the Jewish believers, or even the Gentile believers in Antioch. That's a rabbit hole we could go down to. I'm going to spare us of that rabbit hole. The point that Paul is making here is that Peter was motivated by fear, not a change in theological conviction. His his understanding of the gospel had not changed, even if he was misapplying the gospel in this circumstance. Nonetheless, Peter's separation had a profound impact on the church at Antioch. Because of Peter's influence, many other, all the other Jewish believers no longer ate with their Gentile brothers, including Barnabas, who was Paul's partner in the Gentile ministry, right? Go back to Acts chapter 13. When Paul and Barnabas, or when Paul went out on the first missionary journey to the Gentiles and to begin to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, Barnabas was right there with him. Barnabas was his sidekick. But even Barnabas was, was persuaded, he was swayed by Peter's influence here. By withdrawing from table fellowship with the Gentiles, Peter, Barnabas, and the other Jewish believers were creating an arbitrary schism that was not permitted by the gospel. What was the impact on Gentile believers? Well, Paul doesn't mention it, but no doubt I would think they would have been adversely, they would have felt adversely rebuffed by their Jewish brothers. They were probably made to feel like second class Christians, if not outright pagans. Peter's withdrawal communicated to them that one could not be included among the people of God unless they observed the Jewish dietary laws in addition to faith in Christ. In other words, in order to be a Christian, I not only have to believe in Jesus, but now I've got to obey these dietary laws. I've got to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. And in doing that, Peter had unwittingly added to the gospel which is just what the Judaizers were trying to do in Galatia. Well, Paul calls us out. He identifies this action as hypocrisy in verse 13. That word hypocrisy is a very interesting word in Greek. It comes from the Greek theater, right? When an actor would perform. Today, actors just kind of assume a persona. They maybe change to have certain costumes or they assume a certain character. In the Greek theater, the, the, the actor wore a mask, right? So the mask conveyed to the audience the character they were trying to be, but behind that mask was the actor, was the real person. So the mask was made the actor, if you will, a hypocrite. He was two things. He was portraying himself to be one thing outwardly when he was really something else, truly or inwardly. And so Peter, Barnabas, and the Jewish brothers in Antioch were here 
playing the hypocrite. They were acting hypocritically. They were play acting. They were hypocrites. On the one hand, they affirm the theological conviction that Jews and Gentiles are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But on the other hand, they were showing by their actions that the Gentiles needed to obey the law in order to be fully included among the people of God. In other words, one could not be a real Christian without obeying the law. And for such hypocrisy, then, Paul said that Peter was condemned, not in an eternal sense, but just that he was wrong on this particular issue. He was on the wrong side of this issue. And so Paul opposed him. He opposed Peter here because the gospel, the very gospel, was at stake. By his actions, Peter was communicating something very wrong about the gospel, and Paul felt it needed to be corrected. All right, so that's what Peter did. What did Paul say then in verses 14 to 21? And if you're using an ESV translation, which is the translation I use, it's the translation that you use in the, if you're using the Pew Bible. Many of you I know use that. This is really a head scratcher on, on the, the translator, the editor's uh, uh, decision making here. They put the, you'll notice in verse 14, they put the quotation mark at the end of verse 14, and then they put a, a sort of a, a subject heading between verses 14 and 15. That's really an unfortunate, I think, editorial mistake. Now, it's disputed exactly where Paul's speech to Peter ended and where his sort of a direct address to the Galatians begins. And it's, if you read the commentaries, everybody's got a different opinion. But it seems to me that as Paul is addressing here Peter, that what he says really should go down to the end of verse 21. And that as he is speaking to Peter, as he's writing these words and recording this conversation as with Peter, it really is indirectly speaking to the Galatians. And so I'm going to be uh, operating from that kind of perspective and interpretation that, that all of verses 14 to 21 inclusively here is what Paul is saying to Peter. What does he say? Well, first of all, Paul points out Peter's hypocrisy. Verse 14, he says, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, again, remember, Peter is a Jew, right? But while he was in Antioch, he was living like a Gentile. He ate with the Gentiles. He was not bothered in the least by eating unclean foods that were prohibited by the law. He didn't obey any Jewish law in this way, even though he was a Jew. But now by withdrawing from the Gentiles, Peter was implicitly saying that Gentiles must live like Jews in order to become Christians, that they almost had to convert twice, if you will. They had to become Jews in order to become Christians. He was implying that they must observe, the Gentiles must observe Jewish food laws in order to share gospel fellowship with their Jewish brothers as is common and normal and right for believers. And Paul says that is plain wrong. That is not the gospel. Peter here, by his actions, is implicitly adding to the gospel. He was inadvertently testifying that salvation does not come by faith in Christ alone, but that it requires works of the law in addition to faith in Christ. In order for the Gentile believers to share in true gospel fellowship with their Jewish brothers, Peter here was suggesting that they needed to submit themselves to the regulations of the Old Testament law. And Paul says that is not the gospel. If Peter is a Jew and doesn't need the law to be saved, then why is he compelling the Gentile believers to obey the law for their salvation? 
fact, remember, again, back in Paul's first, second visit to Jerusalem, back in chapter, first part of chapter 2, Peter didn't demand that Titus be circumcised in order to extend the right hand of fellowship to him and include him as a brother in Christ. So why now would Peter demand that Gentile believers in Antioch eat kosher? Paul is playing the hypocrite. So Paul then goes on to remind Peter of the truth of the gospel. Verse 16. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, if you haven't underlined that verse in your Bible, you should. That is probably, maybe, the clearest and simplest explanations of the gospel that you will find in the entire New Testament. It also happens to be the key verse in Galatians. So if you wanted to go impress somebody and say, I can tell you what Galatians is about, you could turn right to Galatians 2.16 and read them that verse, and you would have Paul's thesis statement. If we were grading Paul's letter here as an English professor, we'd give him an A++++ because he gives a very clear thesis statement in chapter 2, verse 16. A person is justified before God by faith alone in Jesus Christ and not by works of the law. That's the point that Paul is making to Peter and Antioch, but to the Galatians in this letter. Now, what does Paul mean by the word justified? The word justified is a legal term and refers to one's right standing before a judge and the law he administers. So when anyone stands before a judge, he is either on the right side of the law or the wrong side of the law, right? Either you've obeyed the law or you've disobeyed the law, right? So let's use an example. Let's just say, for example, I was down at the Circle K on Monday. This is not a real, I'm making this up, okay? This didn't happen. Let's just pretend I was down there on Monday and I was in the store at the time someone stole a candy bar, all right? And the police came in and arrested everyone who was in the store. Now, if I had stolen the candy bar, I would be on the wrong side of the law. Right? I would be guilty. I would be the one that had committed the crime. And when they would take me before the judge and marshal all the evidence, I would be guilty. And this, the judge would pronounce the sentence of guilty in the courtroom because I was on the wrong side of the law. I broke the law. I would be not justified. I am not in right standing before the judge or before his law. But if I did not steal the candy bar, I was innocent in that regard, I'm on the right side of the law. I didn't break the law. Right. And so when I am brought before the judge and all the evidence is marshaled out, then they, the judge would declare me as innocent. Right. The judge would declare me not guilty. I'm on the right side of the law because I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't disobey the law. I had properly obeyed the law in that case. So I am justified and the judge declares me innocent or not guilty in his presence before the law. Now, let's apply that analogy to the divine courtroom. God, as our creator and king, is the rightful judge of all humanity. And on the day of judgment, we will all stand before God to give an account of our lives. If I am on the right side of the law, if I have obeyed God's law perfectly, then I am innocent. And he will declare me righteous by my works, and I'm free to enjoy eternal life and all of its blessings. But if I am on the wrong side of the law, right, if I've broken God's law, then I am guilty. 
And on the day of judgment, God will declare me guilty and he will sentence me to the punishment that I deserve. Now, let's just cut to the chase. Without having to think through every single person, the Bible tells us that all human beings are guilty. We've all broken God's law. There is no one who will stand before God justified on the basis of what he has done. We've all broken God's law. We are all on the wrong side of the law. And so when we stand before God on a day of judgment and have to give an account of our lives without anything else interfering, God will declare us to be guilty and he will sentence us to the condemnation that we deserve. God's eternal torment, the eternal torment of his wrath in hell. Now, that's true for everyone, right? Every human being is going to stand before God and all will be on the wrong side of the law. We will all be guilty of breaking God's law. So that's bad news. The bad news that we need to understand is that there is no one of any human being among us, no one who's ever lived on the earth, save one, get to him in a minute, who is justified before God. We are all transgressors. We are all sinners. We are all deserving of death. And to make matters worse, there is nothing that we can do to justify ourselves before God. There is no way that we can move ourselves from the wrong side of the law to the right side of the law and avoid our deserved condemnation. And Paul says here in verse 16 that by works of the law, the law being the law that God gave to his people, those things he demanded them to do or not do. We think about this as non-Jews, as just simply good works, good things that we could do to be obedient to God, to make ourselves pleasing to God. Paul says that by works of the law, by obeying God's laws, by doing what is right, no one will be justified. No one will be declared righteous on the basis of his works. We cannot justify ourselves because we are sinners, right? We are sinners by birth. We're born with a sin nature and we are sinners by action. In fact, the scripture tells us that if we disobey even one of God's laws, we are guilty of breaking them all. And the fact of the matter is, if we're truthful about ourselves, is that we break far more than a single law in our lifetime. In fact, the scriptures would say there is none who does good. No, not one. Even those things that we think are good, apart from an effort to please God, our works are as filthy rags. So our good works, our obedience to God's law, doing those things that God would command of us, do us no good. Even the good that we do is not sufficient because it doesn't atone for us. And this is the problem, and this is the, the great lie of the world. I can be accepted before God by all the good works that I do. You've heard people say that, right? I'm a good person. We need to be really careful, too, when we talk about people that die, right? A lot, I see a lot of rip. Rest in peace. There's a lot of people, friends, who are not resting in peace because they are transgressors to God's law. We need to be careful of saying to, to people, especially that are outside the Lord, oh, he was a good person. There's none who is righteous before God. None of us are good. Please, at my funeral, no one say that I was a good person. Please. If you say, don't say that I'm an angel. Don't disrespect me like that. Don't disrespect the Lord and his sacrifice for me on that occasion and don't say that i was a good person my kids three or four all my kids are here today so you all make sure nobody says i was a good person and that i'm an angel in heaven okay because ultimately i'm not even the good that i might do is insufficient another example let's say for example i'm going to bring you over to my house for breakfast i'm going to cook us up some scrambled eggs 
And I take a dozen eggs and I crack 11 of them. They're great. They're Tim's eggs, right? They're awesome. I'm not going to buy eggs from anybody else, just Tim. So let's say, for example, in just a, a moment of weakness, oversight, he puts one bad egg into that dozen. And I crack that egg in with the 11 good eggs. And we all know it's, it's bad. Are you going to eat those eggs? I would hope not. Why? We well, said that there's a, there's a bad egg in there, right? But if I'm arguing from the position of the world, I say, well, there's 11 good ones in there. Those 11 good ones certainly will, will counteract the one bad one. No. One is sufficient to taint the whole thing. So it's a fallacious argument that our world gives us that we can be redeemed or saved by our good works. Because our good works can do nothing, even if we could do a bunch of them, which is another fallacious argument. But even if we could do a bunch of them, it doesn't mitigate the bad, the evil that we have done, the sins that we have done. And so Paul here is reminding Peter that they're not justified by works of the law. They're not justified. They're not right before God because of what they've done. They're not justified before God because they've obeyed his law. And so if that's the case, how can a person be justified before God? And friends, this is the most important question that you will ever have to answer in this life. You may think of all the great and big decisions that you have asked of yourself or may ask of yourself. I know there's a bunch. I was actually writing down this week a lot of big questions in my life. And some of those things that really troubled me in my teenage years, in my early 20s, you know, those things, those were silly questions as I look back on it now. And the questions that I wrestle with in my 30s, those are silly questions. And they're questions that I'm wrestling now with now. I'll look back in, in 10 years and probably say, those are silly questions too. But at the very end of our lives, when we're standing before God, all those questions really won't mean anything, right? Where, where should I go to college? What should I major in? Who should I marry? What house should I buy? What career should I have? All those big questions will be nothing when we stand before God. The question that matters on that day is, will you be right before the Lord? How can I stand right before God? How can I stand right before a holy God, what will I say to him on that day of judgment? How can I be justified? How can I be declared righteous when I am guilty and my works are insufficient to justify me? Paul gives us the answer in verse 16. He says that we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the word faith there refers to trust. In other words, Paul here says that we are justified. We are declared righteous. We have right standing before God. We are moved to the right side of God's law by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Now, Martin Luther said that faith is more than simply knowing what Christ has done, although that knowledge is essential. And faith is more than simply agreeing or mentally assenting to what Jesus Christ has done, although agreement is essential to faith. Faith, he says, is trusting It is trusting in Christ alone. He used a Latin word, the word fiducia, that really captures a sense of of what it means to trust. We use that word oftentimes in our monetary system, right? You probably already know that the paper currency that you use for money is worthless, right? I mean, think about it. I think I have a dollar. Here's a dollar. Well, it's ten dollars. Lucky me. I don't carry cash usually. But this is just a piece of paper with some green ink on it essentially what it is, right? It is practically worthless. 
And yet the fact that this is worthless doesn't stop you from spending it and doesn't stop businesses from taking it. Why is that? Well, we trust that when we use our currency, it will be accepted in exchange for goods and services. We're depending upon a business receiving it as payment and the government declaring that it has value. The only reason this piece of paper has any value is because our government says it has value. That's kind of scary. We are depending. We are resting our entire lives upon believing that this piece of paper will be used for goods and services that I need, that someone will give that to me and that it will mean something to me. That is the fiduciary system. We, we trust in our fiduciary monetary system. We trust in how we use our money. We reflect how we, we, we trust in that system when we use our money as we do. Well, in the same way, we are justified by faith in Christ. We trust that what Christ did for us justifies us. We depend upon Christ to justify us. We trust that when we stand before the bar of, God's judge, bar of God's justice on the last day, He will declare us righteous, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. Our rest, our hope, our sufficiency, our dependence is upon Christ alone. And what is it that Christ did for us? Well, Paul says in verse 20 that He gave Himself for us. Paul is here, of course, referring to Christ's death and resurrection. He tells us that the Son of God came into this world. He took on human flesh, just as you and I have. And he, he lived as a human being just as we live. He experienced the full experience of human life with one significant, distinct difference. He didn't sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin so that he would not have a sin nature. He lived the perfect life that God required of every person. He faithfully obeyed God's law in every way. His perfect sinlessness meant that he did not deserve death because death is the penalty for sin. And yet Jesus died. He was crucified. Not for his own sins. He had none. He had no punishment or penalty to bear in his own life. But he died for our sins, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 4. Because he was sinless, he took our place on the cross. He bore our sins. He suffered God's wrath. And in doing all that, he atoned for our sin. Because he paid the penalty for our sin, God forgives us of those sins. He no longer holds them to our account. And in addition, Jesus imputes his righteousness to us so that when we stand before God on the day of judgment, God will see Christ's righteousness in us. You see, God declares us righteous in Christ. We are moved from the wrong side of the law to the right side of the law, not because of anything that we have done, not by any work of the law, but not by any goodness in us, but because of Christ's righteousness imputed to us through His death and resurrection. And we trust upon that. We depend upon that. We rest in Christ and we rest in what He has done for us in the cross. How do we know that that sacrifice is good enough? God raised His Son from the dead. He raised Jesus from the dead. And we can be certain that our faith is sufficient. God raised Jesus from the dead to prove that He accepted Christ's death, Christ's sacrifice, as the payment for our sins. So Paul reminds Peter of this basic and essential truth. 
that even as a Jew, even as one who had God's law, Peter recognized he could only be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And if it was good enough for Peter, it was certainly good enough for the Gentile believers in Antioch. By relaying this rebuke to the Galatians, Paul makes it clear to them that the gospel and the gospel alone is sufficient for their salvation. They do not have to submit themselves to circumcision. They do not have to submit themselves to the dietary laws. They do not have to submit themselves to the Jewish holidays in order to be justified. But they can rest fully and finally in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on their behalf. To require works of the law for justification in addition to or instead of faith in Christ is to dismantle the gospel. And Paul says that there, this is dismantling the gospel for a number of reasons. First, he says that seeking justification by works of the law would make him and Peter lawbreakers again. In verse 18 and 19, he says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. When Christ was when Christ died and was raised for justification, he set us free from the law. As long as the law is in place, it condemns us and makes us lawbreakers once again. So the law reminds us of our sin. It puts us on the wrong side of the law and it sentences us to eternal condemnation. We couldn't keep the law in the first place. Why would we ever want to go back? Christ freed us from the law by, moving, by removing from us the stain of our sin and imputing to us his perfect righteousness. So to seek justification uh, by works of the law would be to bind us again to the law that condemns us. Paul also says that seeking justification by works of the law nullifies the grace of God. Verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So what God did for us in the gospel is a work of grace. He deserved, we deserve death. We deserve eternal condemnation. We deserve God's wrath. But God justified us through the death and resurrection of His Son. That was God's gracious provision for us. It was His gracious provision for our justification, even though we didn't deserve it. So to seek justification by works of the law is to nullify God's grace because it seeks justification in some way other than the way that God has provided to us. And it truly nullifies God's grace because there is no other way to be justified. Paul also says that seeking justification by works of the law makes Christ's death of no purpose. If we could be justified by works, then Christ's death is a cosmic injustice. God unjustly offered his son as a sacrifice if there were any alternative for sinful men to be justified. But because there was no other means of justification, God sent his son. And he is the only remedy that sinful people have to stand right before a holy God. And if that is the only means of justification, then it means we must eschew every other option because those are empty options. We find that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone and not by works of the law. And if that is true, then justification has real implications for how I live today. And Paul reminds Peter of that in verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because we have been justified by faith, we have been crucified with Christ. 
We are identified with him in his death. And because he died for our sins, we died to the law. We no longer place ourselves under the dominion of the law, which brings death. We find life in the dominion of grace in which the resurrected Jesus reigns. The life we now live, Paul says, we live to Christ. He is our life. He lives in us. Whereas the law brought death because of sin, Jesus brings life. He is the operative principle at work in our life through the Holy Spirit. And Christ, by His Spirit, gives life to us and causes us to live to God for the glory of God. And this life that we live, then we are to live by faith. So from an eschatological perspective, from the perspective of the end time, the last day, when we stand before the bar of God's judgment, we'll certainly be justified before God because of what Christ has done for us. Our faith is in him for that moment. But that same faith that justifies us eschatologically also justifies us presently. We are now accepted by God and we are reckoned as righteous in his sight. We now live as we will stand then. By faith alone in Jesus Christ. Christ is our life and we live to the glory of God through him. As Paul writes in Colossians 2, 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, how did you receive him? By faith. Just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So how are we to walk? We are to walk by faith. Faithfully trusting Christ and obeying him as Lord. Now, tomorrow marks the 505th anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses to the church doors in Wittenberg. And if you need to be reminded of that story, I'd ask you to go back and listen to Anthony's sermon, the opening five minutes or so. He kind of goes through that story as an introduction to his message, which is great. Thank you, Anthony, for that. Well, what was Luther doing there? Well, he was taking a stand for the gospel by challenging the Roman Catholic Church on this very question. How will a person stand right before God? Is it sola fide, by faith alone, and solus Christus, in Christ alone, by trusting in Christ and the sufficiency of what he did for us in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead? Or is it fide et operaris, by faith, and the works that we add to it. Luther, of course, because he believed in the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, sided with Paul. He would say, as Paul said in verse 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. You see, friends, Luther didn't see this as some theological triviality. This wasn't just merely interesting, intriguing doctrinal debate. This wasn't the ecclesiastical fad du jour. Why did Luther pour his heart and his soul and his mind and his sweat over the course of the entire entire course of his life into the fight over this very doctrine? Because, as he said, Justification is the article or the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. That's quite a bold thing to say, to say this is the thing. If the church is going to be flourishing and successful, it's going to be this. If the church falls, it's going to be because of this. He says if the church gets justification right, 
it will thrive and it will flourish and it will stand and it will prosper to the glory of God. If the church gets justification wrong, it will fall. And Luther was exactly right. Look at those churches and denominations that are strong and prospering in the Lord. They are churches that get justification right and proclaim it faithfully. And look at those churches and denominations that are weak and floundering. Just recently in the news in this past year, an entire denomination has fallen off the cliff because they got this doctrine wrong many decades ago. Some of those denominations, some of those churches have died. Others are near the point of death. And it's all because they got justification wrong. Friends, justification is no theological banality. It is the central doctrine around which we order our lives, our church, and our eternity. That's why Paul opposed Peter so boldly. That's why Paul contended with the Galatians so urgently. And that's why we must uphold the doctrine of justification daily in our personal lives and in our church. For, this, for by this glorious and gracious doctrine that we are justified by faith in Christ alone and not by works of the law. Sinners, we ourselves, are declared righteous by God and stand before him uncondemned. Praise be to God for this wonderful gospel in which we stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for your grace that made it all possible. That even before time began, Lord, you chose us for yourself. You chose the path, the means by which we would be saved. To send your son into the world, to take on human flesh, to live the perfect life, to die on the cross, to be raised again from the dead for our justification. So that we might stand right before you. That we not be condemned. That we not suffer eternal wrath. Oh, Lord, we are grateful. And I pray, Lord, that gratitude would well up in our lives, not just simply in an emotional euphoria, but that it would well up in our, in our own lives in faithfulness and obedience to you and to your word. May we live in this truth. May we live, as Paul says in verse 20, that Christ is, at, is living in us. And that the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave ourselves for us. May we live in that, Father. May we live to go and to share that truth with others who are on the wrong side of the law, to those who are guilty, to those who are condemned, so that you might continue to call sinful people to yourself in this glorious gospel of grace. We love you, Lord. Pray that you would use your word in our hearts and lives to accomplish your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.